The Third Man Podcast is a fan-made, not-for-profit, just-for-fun celebration of Jack White and is in no way directly affiliated with Third Man Records or the man himself. For the definitive history of Jack White and his music, please consult your local Jack White. And for everyone else looking for a home, you found one here, in a place so seedy. Enjoy! Third Men Podcast, the Jack White Third Man Records History Program. I'm your co-host, Paul Kaminsky. And I'm your co-host, James Kaminsky, currently <laughs> podcasting out of his car. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> and we have a very special guest with us today, Ms. Lola Kirk. Lola, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, my pleasure. Hi, guys. Hi. We're, Hi. we're such big fans of your music. Lady for Sale, your new album on Third Man Records, available now, is fantastic. We love it so, so, so much. Thank you. That means a lot to me. It's seriously a beautiful album. Pink Sky is perfect. I love it so much. So, <laughs> Yay! I'm very happy to hear that. So we're going to talk a little bit about, uh, about the new record, a bit about your background and some of your other music, but I guess we'll start right in here. There's a line that kicks off the album, it's all wrong, but I'm all right. <laughs> and this seems like a, maybe even a mantra for you, maybe, at least in your songwriting, where you sort of laugh in the face of tragedy and find power in the defiance. Um, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about your mission statement coming into this record and maybe a bit about some of that defiance that uh, seems as though it inspired some of the songs. Wow. I mean, it's so nice to hear that's your takeaway on it. And, I, you know, it's all wrong, but I'm all right. Tends to actually yes, be my mantra. This week it's not been, I've been like a total wreck. So I'm like, it is, it's true. I am all right. Um, Songwriting for me has always been a way of 
healing myself. And I don't say that like in a kind of like woo woo way, even though, as I said it, it did sound quite woo woo. (laughs) I, I really mean like I can only really get myself to write a song when I'm in like the depths of despair. And though I typically tend to hate my pain, I'm always really grateful for it afterwards because it makes me very creative. And yeah, a lot of this album was born out of incredible amounts of doubt and longing and both romantically and professionally. And through the process of writing it, I got to really understand this part of myself that always just wants more. (laughs) Um, And that's a really, really uh, hard thing to understand about yourself because it kind of shows you that you will never be satisfied and um <laughs> and and that's a bummer because satisfaction and peace i think are are quite uh hand in hand with one another so i don't know it, it a lot of the record is about uh falling in love at, a, at the wrong time and trying to talk yourself out of out of that and tell yourself that your life is good as it is and that the person you're in love with won't bring anything into your life And then being like, fuck it, I'm going to go and follow my heart and create this new life and discovering the joy of that. And also the kind of, I don't know, uh, what's it called? Complacency and other issues that that come up with with following your heart. It's all wrong, but I'm all right. It should be good by this time. Because every time we talk, you just cry. that uh the kind of linchpin of the record is lady for sale which is about that kind of uh dissatisfaction in your professional life so though that song is a thematic outlier it still has this sense of like i'm dissatisfied and how do i how do i make myself feel better about that yeah i mean as an actress as well as a as a singer and a songwriter i'm sure that is something that just is a part of your day-to-day life having to sell something about yourself to the public whether you're selling cult of personality of which you have a dynamic one you know on social media i mean it's uh, it's really distinct but whether you're selling a skill you have or something it's it's just it's so much different than like a trade or something where it's like yeah it's you that's being sold it's kind of like it must be a little um it must weigh on you a bit oh it sucks i mean it's it, it, <laughs> oh, no. it's great when it works you know when people want to buy it it's amazing. You get high for a second, but when no one cares, you can feel tremendously low. And, you know, I I think that something I have discovered about myself in this process is that I really have relied on others to kind of give me (laughs) self-esteem, which, you know, inherently is, is not how self-esteem works. Um, So I don't know. I, I, it's been really important for me to kind of look at why I wanted to be for sale. Yeah. And what happens when nobody buys you? Um, and then also, like, what what my kind of metric of success is? And I think in this in this day and age, when met, I hate saying in this day and age. I hate saying things like that. I'm always like, you sound like you're a thousand years old, <laughs> and you're not. Um, but 
there are so many metrics available to you at all times now. Views, likes, streams, I don't even, just so many followers. And it's really like, it's really fucked up. Like that, I don't, I mean, that that artists now have to kind of interface with this in real time uh, sense of what they're, how interesting what they're doing is to other people because it's not really true. And and when I hear people say, as you, you did at the beginning of this interview so kindly, like, you know, I really like your record. I'm like, oh, that's what it's really all about. That, yeah. that kind of connection. So I don't know, I, I think I wanted to kind of make a record that addressed the world that we live in now by and and using tropes from the world that doesn't exist anymore <laughs> like 80s and 90s country and you know rock but i don't think it was enough in a way to to really fight the world as it is now because the world as it is now is very i mean it's it, it'll eat you alive yeah yeah uh it i mean the album itself does have kind of a a delighted sadness to it um <laughs> so i and i think that you know part of it is the the kind of uh country slide and twang that kind of flows into there and it's it's super interesting to hear you talk about this because it, artists are by their very nature quantified by how people engage with their work as opposed to you know a product they are the product and so it's it's a whole mm. different animal and can feel very unnerving especially if you're not made of steel <laughs> which most people aren't so right. um i mean i yeah. think there's good reason why most artists are narcissists they're like the only <laughs> ones that can really handle it i mean it's because it's crazy sorry there's a leaf blower outside I, okay. i'm powerless over when the leaves are blown i'm um, literally out of my car right now <laughs> <laughs> okay great i'm also recovering from terrible bronchitis so oh this my is, god we're all just being our real <laughs> selves here well you know i want to touch on the uh, obviously the uh, the sounds of this record a bunch um but but before we do that i thought we would just talk a, a little bit about what you had started to say there about the struggles of an artist the title track especially gives a sort of grim view of the music business uh, today. And there's a line from, I think it's No Secrets, where you say, I'm a woman, not a business deal. This is sort of, uh, whether that's about romance or whether that's about the music business, regardless, I think it's- It really sort of, go either way. Yeah. It sort of works, yeah, either way. Uh, where artists have to sell themselves on social media 24-7. I mean, it's, it's this interesting burden. I mean, James and I both work in the arts, and I've seen the shift myself, even in the past five years. The onus has Tremendously, more, yeah. yeah the, the onus has become more on the artist to- build their following as opposed to a label or something uh, which would be doing typically that kind of marketing legwork, you know, whether it's yeah. in, the, in, the, in the music business in the past. I suspect that a label like Third Man might seem like a great alternative to that kind of a soul-sucking existence. Uh, yeah. Did you find a kinship with the Third Man folks when it came to that stuff? Absolutely. And something that I remind myself of a lot is that like, by landing at a label like Third Man, I really was able to, I don't know, it was revealing. Like I, I they're such a niche label that put out such like art focused pieces. And when I'm not getting the kind of like, I don't know, 
mass market appeal that I want, I remember like, oh, that's because like I am at this really cool place where like that's not the intent. Um, like making the creative choices that you want to make. Sorry, my dog has like the zoomies right now. It's okay. It He's so cute though. Oh my God. Um is that a poodle? Is that did I see what there he is he is a Maltese oh, shih tzu mix. He really, really oh, likes being my, on oh, podcasts. That's a oh very good dog. Oh. <laughs> He's so good. <laughs> hey, hi. <laughs> okay, go play. He's playing with this like really sad toy that um, <laughs> that like I, it, another dog like ripped it to shreds, and he's still like obsessed with it. So I don't know. He's yeah, an only child. Dogs love to have those weird carcasses of of old begotten yeah, toys. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly what it is. Um, but yes, I I I think that Third Man has. I love their kind of intention as a label just to like make music or put out music that is interesting and good. (laughs) And that's like, that's what they do. And they're wonderful. And they are like maybe the nicest people I've ever met in my life. Which Ben, though? I mean, it depends on which Ben. Which Ben do I like more? <laughs> I mean, I I love both the Ben. <laughs> okay. But you know, Ben Swank's uh, wife Jamina was. I mean, I, I'm sure you know Be Your Own Pet, but I went to see Be Your Own yeah. Pet um, at a nightclub called Southpaw when I was 14 with my big sister, because oh. I was obsessed. Um, and I just got to see them again open for Jack That's at right. um at, in at Barclays Center. So. Pretty, pretty cool. <laughs> that's great. Oh, that's awesome. Um, well, to, to to touch on the the sounds of the album that that we kind of brought up earlier with the countryside and stuff. There's a mix of kind of '80s synth pop and you know Nashville twang to it that uh, kind of hits us right in the sweet spot. Which you know, was this a choice that evolved in the studio? Was this a conscious thing that was set up in advance? Was this to further? Yeah, it was uh, a really push- conscious thing set up in advance. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, producer Austin Jenkins and I just like really fell in love. He's he's a Texan and he's, um, you know, I think grew up listening to that kind of music and, and we just fell in love with that kind of, that kind of sound. And I don't know, I mean, I think that he was like, you know, you have some of that spark in you. Like, why are you making like, like all this like sad girl rustic music? <laughs> like, you know, you you could be like a sparkly, shiny that that person, like Olivia Newton John in a jumpsuit or something like that. And I was like, yeah, it could be that. So once we um, once we discovered that, I mean, I, also I will say the song that really kind of introduced me to that world was uh, Seven Year Eight, the Roseanne Cash song, which. A psychic had told me to listen to when I was in my 
the depths of my despair and should I stay or should I go from this relationship I'd been in and I was in love with somebody else and blah, blah, blah. And she was like, you need to listen to the seven year ache. That song will like, it'll be your future. And I was like, that sounds grim. (laughs) And then I listened to it and I was like, oh, maybe she was, maybe she meant it'll be my future. Like sonically, like there was all this work I was going to do within, you know, that style aesthetically. being that way so uh we just like I, I think i just found that music really excited and i was kind of surprised that nobody had like ripped it off yet yeah yeah it's like it's so rich yes yeah it's such a specific sound i mean yeah. it's like corny but it's like not at all at the same time so i don't I, I maybe people just haven't heard it yet or they associate it with their parents too much in like the wrong way it'll come around though it always does yeah yeah <laughs> That's super interesting. And what you pulled from that really works. You pull it off very, very well. Those workout videos, I know we'll probably touch on that, but uh, they definitely tap into that. It's very fun. Um, Why, thank you. (laughs) And you mentioned Austin Jenkins, who produced and co-wrote the record with you. And we know uh, White Denim had a passing familiarity with Third Man in the past. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, working with Austin as a producer and, and how you cross oh, paths yeah. with, with Third Man in, Austin in general? Austin and I met at a songwriting retreat that John Johnson has in Nantucket. And we immediately connected and I went to Fort Worth to make a, a duets EP with him uh, called Friends and, and Foes and Friends Again. Yeah. I'm sitting alone Saturday night Watching the late, late show Bottle of wine Some cigarettes I got no place to go Well, I saw your other love today Wearing my new blue shoes And I'm down to see dance, dance again and when I got there I think that for that record he had really wanted to make like 
really standard Texas country music with me. And I was like, still, I didn't think it was cool yet. I was like, I wanted everything to sound like kind of like fucked up. But he was like, no, I want everything to sound like super clean. But he ultimately was deferential to me. And we made the kind of like Americana E record that I had wanted to make. And then when we got together to make this record, I was kind of like, I want you to, you take the the reins. You can do like, I want, I want to follow your lead here because you know, I just want to see what what happens. And as he was kind of like, this is what I was talking about and playing me all this other music. I was like, oh, yeah, that's exactly what I what I want to do. And I mean, he's an incredibly he's like the most gifted guitar player I have ever known. We demoed the entire record like to a T before we we actually made it just like on a laptop. Wow. And um those demos, I'm sure if we had had them like properly mixed, they would have just been like, you know, they could have been the masters. But uh, we ended up bringing those demos to a really amazing group of musicians, Maddie Alger and JT Thomas and Will Van Horn, who I love who plays Steel on the record and making it in the studio, which I'm glad because I, I love the way it came out. But yeah, he's a force musically. So it was absolutely so fun to get to work with him, even though like he's a stickler too. Like, I mean, I don't understand so many things about music and he would be like, you need to sing to a click. And I'd be like, okay, great. And I didn't understand why it wasn't working and like, didn't understand like the, like, I don't know, the amount of like stress that came with like getting it right. But then how much I grew from the experience musically of like listening to him and crying mm. <laughs> um, uh, was, was great. Oh, well, that's uh, so it was did, like a uh, musical taming of the shrew. Right. <laughs> was Austin, what, what brought you into the, the third man orbit or had you been familiar with them mm. uh, in the, in the no, um, I, I had always known about third man. I mean, I was a big fan of Jack White's when I was younger. I remember, I mean, I have the white stripes and I, remember when Jack White started Third Band. I remember like hearing about it and being like, that's so cool. I yeah. never heard anything like that before. I was like 13. And um, then when I was like 20, I drove across country and we stopped here and we tried to go, me and my uh, friend tried to go and make a little record in the phonograph booth yeah, that was yeah. broken that day. <laughs> and I was oh, no. like, damn it. Um, Damn. So, I mean, <laughs> you know, that it all comes back around. But I, we ended up becoming really close with uh, Jordan Williams, who's the creative director at Third Man. And yeah. her husband, Ben Chapel, filmed my workout video. <laughs> and I think he played her the album and she really liked the album. And my manager at the time was close with Katie Studley, who's over at Third Man. Yeah. And I think kind of through all those different connections, a partnership came together. Yeah, yeah, synthesis. Um, well, to talk about your songwriting for a bit, my favorite cut on the album is "The Crime" by far. Oh. Um, oh. I love, I love that song so much. And maybe it's just my overfamiliarity with "Better Than Any Drug" because it had been out for a while, and so you, sure. you know that thing where you, you're familiar with the single, and then the album comes out, and you're like, "Oh, but that one." Yeah. Um, there's so many wonderful lines in this song. I the one that. I was out on a run when I heard it the first time and I was laughing like an idiot in the street when the line came up, fuck the world you told me, but for once I did not agree. What I did not realize is that you meant it literally. That is brilliant. Very nice. Why, uh, thank you. <laughs> I also the, love the, the smoke and resin line too. Can, can you tell us a little bit about um, the writing on that track? And it, it seems like it was inspired from some maybe fairly specific events, but I mean, if maybe not having to go into too much detail there in, in whatever that private experience is. Can you tell us a bit about how that track came to be? 
Sure. Yeah, that was one of the first songs I actually wrote for the record. Um, and I had demoed it with another producer, a good friend of mine, Charlie Klarsfeld. And I always had loved it. I didn't know if it would fit on on this record because it, it was kind it, it it was just in a completely different zone sonically. But we ended up um, listening to uh, the Dolly Parton, Chet Atkins song. Uh, Do I ever cross your mind? And I was like, oh, what if we like kind of adapted the song to be more in that zone? Then I feel like it would fit with the rest of the aesthetic of the record. So I changed the chorus around a bit and added the like ba 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 da at the end, and I thought that was kind of like. I go walking through fields where we walked long ago in the sweet used to be and the flowers still grow but they don't smell sweet as they did when you picked them for me and when I think of you yes I was easily sold was actually a short story that I had written um, about an experience I had had uh, with a boyfriend when I was 18. And I had always really liked the short story, but I was like, I don't write short stories. I mean, I actually do write short stories now. <laughs> but at the time I was like, what am I going to do with the short story? Um, <laughs> and I was like, oh, I'll make it into a song. And so I made it into a song and it was really, really healing. I mean, that relationship, as you can probably <laughs> gather from the <laughs> lyrics, was was quite uh, traumatizing. And I wrote it like a decade after that relationship. And I was like, this is great. Um, I'm really happy to like finally kind of put a button on on that experience. And I'm so glad that it made you laugh because, yes, I, I, I'm, <laughs> you know, that's as I'm sure you have gathered at this point, humor is my, is my main way of fighting, fighting for goodness in this world. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you need to, that's where that defiance comes in, right? Cause if you're not laughing, you're crying. So you may as well laugh, you know? It's true. There's really no in between for me as well. So. <laughs> Staring. As someone, yeah. As someone who uses it as a coping mechanism, I can completely relate. So <laughs> great. Let's talk about your voice for a moment. I look at a track like um, Pink Sky and I hear that as a really clear example of the range your voice has to offer. Um, we hear a lot, we talk to a lot of vocalists on this program and they often say that they went through a process of finding their voice and what their voice actually would be. And it's, it's such a vulnerable thing because you're taking this private part of yourself and projecting it 
out and mm. you know a lot of people for seeing like i think share right she had this terrible stage fright and stuff like that and it could be debilitating for some but i was wondering if you could tell us a bit about your vocal inspirations and maybe how you came about finding your own voice oh that's a really nice question <laughs> and and one that i'm like as i cough through my <laughs> yeah. voice right now. Um, <laughs> finding my voice has been really challenging. I started smoking when I was like 12 <laughs> and um, I had already had been told I had like a cool sounding, like Husky voice. And then, you know, I was this teenage smoker and I had always taken, I, we had music at my school and I would always take um, the uh, vo voice class because I was like, that's the easiest one. Then you don't have to learn any actual instruments. Like, thank God. Yeah. <laughs> um, always looking for a way to, you know, skirt over true responsibility, which is weird because I'm a, I'm very much not like that now, but I was like the laziest kid in the world. Like all I wanted to do was watch TV and smoke pot. And now I'm really just not like that. But anyway, um, I took voice classes and I was like, the worst singer in the class. I like couldn't get like a single note out, but my teacher was this really fun, uh, fabulous man named Peter Clark. And Peter would always like have this wall of divas. And like, he would always like look at me when I was singing, like we did a lot of show tunes and I would always do cabaret because that was the easiest one with no range. Yeah, You could just kind of like talk sing. Um, <laughs> and he was just like, you sound like you have emphysema. And I was like, no. Um, but I... So I was just kind of like lost. And then I started playing ukulele and, and singing a little bit later. And that was fun because I could like sing songs that I liked to sing. Yeah. Like um, I started singing Crazy by Patsy Cline and Stand By Your Man and all this stuff. And, and it was really like against there was a lot of adversity. Like literally no one wanted to hear me sing and play the ukulele. Like every time it would come out, my friends would leave. <laughs> and um, I just, you know, <laughs> kept on doing it. And then I started playing guitar and I started writing my own songs. And I was always kind of aware that I had like a nice sounding voice, but like it could do very, very little. And it gave me a massive complex. And then I was doing a movie with my sister and I had to scream at my sister and my sister is an infuriating person. And I actually screamed at her very, very loud. And I burst a blood vessel in my vocal cord. And oh after that, I, I mean, it was just like terrible. Like I would, I would go on tour and I would like lose my voice every five seconds. I was on vocal rest. I was going to have to get surgery. Yeah. I did like six weeks of vocal rest and blah, blah, blah. It just, it sucked. And then I started seeing this like mystic vocal healer who was so cool and always trying to convince me to be Polly, <laughs> which I love. And I was like, look, I'm a jealous bitch and I will never be Polly, but I like where you're going. I like the whole vibe. Yeah, the I like your cool. vibe. Yeah, yeah. He was so cool. He was just like, your voice is not broken. Stop thinking that. And that was amazing. And then I started just kind of de developing range. Like so much of my voice has been just about believing it. And Austin would hear me like sing like <laughs> Joe Cocker songs really like loud. And I would like imitate Joe Cocker. And he was like, what are you talking? Like, I mean, I, they, they don't sound good, but like, he was like, you can do a lot with your voice. And it was really helpful to kind of discover through just like people being like, you know, you're wrong. Your your way you're seeing your voice is really limiting to you. Um, because yeah. like when I hear you sing, I hear all of this range. And then like hearing vocalists like Tanya Tucker, who I think have that range and that like kind of 
uh, very distinct style, but a lot of flexibility opened me up. And something that Austin just like would always challenge me to do when we were making this record was just like play. And, um, and I think that that served the songs really nicely. I mean, every, every artist needs some kind of coach to be in there to, to kind of direct them into where their strengths lie. Uh, and then totally. to, to kind of tap into that and, and uh, you know, you, you do have beautiful range. It's, it's, you, you've got a great voice and. Well, um, thank you. You yeah, know, uh, it's, it's just people you, you absorb. I mean, I don't know, maybe this is more, Oh, I think this is everyone. Maybe it's more women. I don't know. Maybe it's just me, but like, I walk around with like a backpack of bullshit people said to me <laughs> every single day. And like, I am like slowly but surely opening it up and be like, oh, that's not true anymore. Or maybe it was never true. And I think that, you know, the voice is one of those things. So many people who have struggled with their voice will talk about like how mental it is. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the music videos you have for these songs are a lot of fun. I know we already touched on the workout one a little bit, but the song Better Than Any Drug has a pretty great video. And we noticed there was a height chart in the door frames. Was this <laughs> especially scouted for the shoot? Was it? Oh, my uh, God, no. That house is like the most beautiful house in Nashville. When I first started coming down here for work, I would always stay with the these friends of mine, uh, Robin and Karen Eaton, who are just like the coolest people and they live in this house that was like a um hospital during the confederate war (laughs) it was like it's so cool and their daughter is a really gifted filmmaker alex eaton and um i asked her to make the video and she was like well we have to shoot at the house and i was like thank you so much (laughs) i can't wait (laughs) so that's that's her height chart on the wall Um, (laughs) there you go yeah that that, and it was just it was a free location fortunately yeah wow that's wild Nashville is full of a lot of those types of like very personality driven homes and things, you know, sort of ornate. Oh, my God. It is. But they're fewer and further between these days because it's a lot of like new new builds going up. Yeah. Um, yeah. But those those houses are so incredible, like the old ones that have been here forever. I mean, I, I guess a lot of them were kind of torched during that war. So, yeah. Oh, well, a, yeah. So a friend of mine. um who described writing a song about one of those um, one of those houses specifically as sort of a vaguely spooky but also kind of warm and comforting sort of thing? I don't know. It's really yeah. Oh, I, I all of that. Yeah. For sure. <laughs> yeah. There's something. What was it? It was just like something I heard that Bob Dylan talk about the South, where it's just like it's all. I'm not going to quote this well, but just this idea that like it's just filled with spirits. Yeah, it's kind of true. I mean, I, I, I really love living here. I, I really do. Not because I love spirits. I mean, I guess I like spirits, but I'm, I'm also terrified of them. But I like, I like the the complicated history, and I, I think that the South is such a complicated place. I mean, especially, especially right now, uh, because it's you know far more right than it is, and and you know so many of the policies on the right are the policies that are uh, really killing people. Um, but I think that, you know, when I, when I reflect on the art that I love of the past, it always seems that it was made in a container of adversity. Like, yeah. you know, the artists were the ones who were fighting for something. And right. mm-hmm. I feel that living in environments where everything is okay, artists have way less responsibility to make something great. 
Right. You know, like if you're just living in a town where everyone agrees with you, then what's your role as an artist, really? Right. right. Yeah. yeah. It uh, it definitely helps fuel some artistic creativity for sure. Well, by the way, I just wanted to really quick say, and by the way, we agree with you. Fuck Paul Ryan. <laughs> <laughs> You've done your research. Uh, yes, no. fuck Paul Ryan. Where is that guy even these days? Uh, you know, I, I want to say lifting, lifting something. You know, They're probably in a brothel. Yeah. I'm guessing, right? <laughs> yeah, right. Um, but seriously, in light of all the the stuff that's come out recently, we really thank you for all the the championing you've done of Planned Parenthood and all that oh, stuff. Uh, because, yeah, I appreciate that. Yeah, you know, I, mean, I, I mean that stuff not only affects all women, but also affects the, you know, the men that are with those women and, and who are there to support them and, yeah. and, and give them the, the kind of health care that they need. And so we really are appreciative of you being a voice out there for them. Oh, I, I, I thank you for saying that. Yeah, it's the least, least you can do in this time. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, you, you were bringing up you know, Nashville and, and living in Nashville, and uh, we wanted to you know, touch a little bit on your background. Uh, you were born in London and raised in New York City, which uh, makes the country turn slightly unexpected. And we, we read that there was maybe an attraction to the drama inherent to country music, like you mentioned with Dolly Parton. Can you uh, tell us a little bit about your background and how it informed your sound, your general musical sound? I mean, we heard a little bit about your voice, but where's your yeah. where's your musical taste coming? Oh, my God. I mean, well, uh, my dad always loved country music. And I mean, I thought he was out of his mind, honestly, when I was younger. (laughs) He would like play me like really, I mean, play me music that I love now, like Vince Gill. And I'd be like, I don't get it. I rushed home from work like I like that's corny grown-up stuff like i i wanted him to kind of live in that classic rock world that i associated with him because my dad is a is a musician um who played in free and bad company and um i like wanted i wanted more of that but he i think you know as he got older he gravitated more towards the expertise and the songwriting that is really really amazingly present in country music that i now love too um but yeah i i kind of was listening to uh a lot of like graham parsons was really my entrance into country music want to scratch my itch sweet annie rich and welcome me back to town Come out on your porch or step into your parlor and I'll tell you how it all went down. Out with the truckers and the kickers and the cowboy angels and a good saloon in every single town. Oh, and I remembered something you and I know that he was a complicated character in the world of country music as well, even though his, his nudie suit is in the country music hall of fame here. Um, but it was kind of through classic rock that I discovered country and then through Grant Parsons that I really got to discover m- way more country. Um, and I, I don't know why I liked it. It's, it's funny, like there feels like there's this, that you have to act like, 
Like, why do you, like, it feels like you have to be geographically tied to a genre in order to enjoy it. Right, <laughs> that, right. Particularly with country. That's like the one, like, nobody's, like, mad at people for, like, liking uh, hip-hop. Like, everyone likes hip-hop, regardless of where they're from. I guess hip-hop isn't really geographically specific. Yeah. Though you could like Tupac and be from New York. <laughs> I don't know. Like, I don't. <laughs> yeah. I don't I don't get it or you know I guess like country music yes it's connected very much to a region so I I mean there's just so much I like about it though uh I think that it, I'm I'm reading this uh book called Tragic Country Queen this Tammy Wynette biography and in it it she talks about like how rock and roll always sugarcoats everything yeah. Like country music is the only music that has the balls to be honest about how you really feel. <laughs> and and I think I, I agree with that. And, and that honesty has, has been so exciting to me. That's interesting. You do bring a, a nice rock and roll flair to it. Uh, you know, not that country music doesn't have rock and roll in it to begin with. Um, and t- saying it's tied, a lot of people think it's tied to a region. I mean, just look at Ringo Starr, that man. Die for he loves it so much. Easy. Yeah, uh, but I appreciate the kind of realization that everybody can like music, regardless. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it was like someone said, like it's just like how much grit you have on your soul. Right. <laughs> um, that was in the Ken Burns ten-hour-long country documentary. <laughs> Maybe it was Hank Williams who said that. Like it's just about how much grit you have. It doesn't matter where you come from. And I don't mean to toot my own horn here, but there's a lot of grit in my life. Yeah. <laughs> um, maybe just grime <laughs> that I would like to get rid of. But it, it's felt gritty at, at times. Uh, yeah, you can hear it on the record for sure, for sure. Well, so we, you, you mentioned your father, who, of course, uh, played drums with Bad Company, Free and Wildlife and, and, and other things. And I guess, uh, you know, I would imagine that some of some of that exposure to the life of a musician must have you know, helps kind of inform at least some of your basis for your for your musical taste, at least on a sort of a gut level. Uh, but your mom is, is is no slouch either. Obviously, you know, she owned a boutique in New York, right? Yes, yeah, yes. Yeah. She sort of lives by by continentally. So did you get any, uh, what was your, uh, is that a word? I don't know. Um, I like what, it. What did you glean from your, from your mom's musical taste? Oh my God, my mom like doesn't really have musical taste she just listens to music really loud (laughs) like she kind of just like likes what i like i mean i don't know she doesn't she's she likes a vibe she's my mom is incredible my mom's an amazing artist though i don't even know if she would call herself that but she my mom designs clothing and designed houses and just always has a way of kind of creating an atmosphere that looks like a 19th century French brothel or something like that. And it's like, whoa. And there's, there's music playing very loud at all times and you can't really hear what's going on. But uh, yeah, I, I think what I gleaned from her creativity was just like how much you can make something beautiful that maybe wasn't before you got there. Yeah. That's part of being an artist too. Um, yeah, yeah, just in no matter where you are. So let's talk a little bit about some of your other music uh, briefly here. I want to touch on on your transition from, you know, uh, actress to to singer and, and to songwriter. Uh, your 2016 EP, which I really really adore. There's a there's a great oh, song. Thank I, you. One of my favorite songs of yours is this song called Baby Butt, which is oh. a, a wonderful pun, uh, which I appreciate. <laughs> um, <laughs> Yeah. 
And also shares a lyric with one of my favorite Todd Rundgren songs, uh, uh, Just Another Onion Head, Da Da Dolly, where he says, have yourself, have another helping prime cut of baby's butt. Um, Oh my God, I didn't know that. That's so great. I love Todd Rundgren. You and Todd right here. Yeah. so uh, it's it's got this kind of almost like your earlier work has this bit of like this Rilo Kiley-ish thing going on. There's these like rolling guitars and these pretty harmonies. And, and a lot of your uh, your work uses humor, as we talked about, to sell pathos. In, in writing songs, are you thinking about that tongue-in-cheek as it pertains to the music? Like, are you consciously putting those kinds of lyrics next to a certain kind of sound to produce a certain feeling when you're orchestrating a song in the studio? Oh, God, I don't even know. I okay. <laughs> I just write the songs. I I am useless in a studio. Like yeah. I I would really rather leave. <laughs> yeah. Honestly, I, I I just because like gear is the most boring thing in the entire world to me. I I feel like you really got to know your lane and I don't know that lane. I just write and I sing and that's it. But <laughs> those earlier songs were really just like those were the first songs I'd ever written. So it was it wasn't so much a choice as it was just like, this is what I got. Let's, let's do it. I mean, for the last record I had written like 75 songs and really whittling them down to see what fit most into the kind of landscape that we had wanted to place everything in was, was how we, you know, made the choice. That's quite a stack of material. Are we looking at a follow-up? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Right in it right now. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. Fantastic. Fantastic. Well, tell, tell us a little bit about how you write. Like, are you tucking yourself away in a corner? Are you are you writing on the road? Are you writing on set? Like, how, how do you approach it? I used to write that? a lot on set. It like it was it would be like I'd finish a day of work after 14 hours and get home and just be like, I should go to bed, but I have all this energy and <laughs> I'm going to write now. And then a yeah. lot of the time writing is kind of like where where I when I don't want like it's like it like comes to me and it's annoying. Like I wake up in the middle of the night to pee and then I'm like, fuck, got a melody. Okay. I gotta (laughs) sing it now. (laughs) Um, So it's, it's organic and inconvenient. Um, That's Trader Joe's. uh, That's Trader Joe's slogan. actually. Oh my God. That's amazing. You're right. Yeah. Me and Trader Joe's organic and inconvenient. Um, And then uh, I also love co-writing. Uh, so that'll be like, I'll have titles. I have lists and lists of titles and yeah. get, go to a co-write and write with some magical person that will turn that little idea into something much bigger. And I mean, there's so many ways to write. Are you bouncing stuff lyrically off of somebody else going lyric for lyric? Are you having them help with the musical process? Is it a little it bit It just depends on their, on their specialty, really. Sometimes I'll... It's, I, there are some writers that I've gotten to write with here that are just like wizards. Like you go in and you come out, even if you don't really like the song, you're like, that's a great song. <laughs> like they yeah. just know what they're doing. That's a Nashville specialty. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, so we'll, we'll touch on, we have one more question here then we're going to go to a, a lightning round. Um, okay. I, wanted, I wanted to talk about omens for a moment because I, as I, we talked about before the call, that was the song that hooked me on your music. 
you know, it sounds a little bit like, and we've talked about this a bit throughout the course of the interview, but the vibe is sort of at times tragic, but at times upbeat. And it, it feels a little like you're maybe reveling in tragedy and, and again, using it as a battle cry to kind of inspire you to, to rise above it. Mm-hmm. Um, us a little bit about um, the recording and the writing of the track Omens? Yeah, so I wrote that at that artist colony or that songwriting colony that I went to with Austin Jenkins. Um, And I wrote it with a guy named Tom Payton. And I think cocaine is a cartoon highway was the first lyric (laughs) I had for that song. Um, I don't know why. (laughs) I don't know where that came from. Um, But uh, Tom... And I wrote that chorus together and it was the first time I think I'd really written with like a writer. Like he had like a Christina Aguilera cut or something. I had never really written with somebody like that. Um, And then that song kind of evolved. That song was, was uh, recorded with Matthew White, Matthew E. White, who is a dear friend um, over in Richmond, Virginia at the space bomb universe in the space bomb universe with that amazing house band that they have. And it was such a treat. Um, and that was, it, it was a very dark time in my life when I went and recorded that song. And it was kind of the beginning of the, of the journey towards this record when I made that song. And I kind of confided in Matt. I was like, look, I'm going through this really hard time. Can we change some of the lyrics in the song to kind of be more expressive of that? Because I need yeah. to make something about it. And he was like, yeah. So he was my confidant. And, uh, I really love the way that song came out. And the B side of that is a cover of, uh, Rick Danko's uh, Sip the Wine, which was so much fun to get to record. I read that uh, the, the track was maybe inspired by um, the romanticization and objectification of romantic interests, like putting people on, on pedestals. And there's that drama and the soulfulness of your voice that gives the tune the thematic link to that sort of thing. But it's interesting. I wanted to touch on the idea of like the pedestal for a moment, because obviously coming from a family of notoriety is yours and and being you know in, in a celebrity yourself, I would imagine growing up with that blown out expectation would inform some of your choices as an adult do you have a meditation on celebrity and the whole trip because your your perspective is so unique on it i mean as a second (laughs) generation you know yeah i mean i think being famous is bad i think it's bad i i think that (laughs) 
it's not special anymore. Like anyone can do it. Seemingly it's been democratized in this like really scary way where like now you can be famous without skill. You can just be famous for like your lifestyle. Not to say that there aren't tons of wonderfully skilled people that are famous, but um, growing up, it was so omnipresent in my life. And it kind of became the focus, like, you know, you wanted to be near the famous person and, and like, it really fucked everybody up in my family. It's not a good thing. I mean, I think Marx talks about (laughs) not fame, but like money when that's really invited into the family system, how it like poisons it. And I, I think that fame does that too. Um, and even though I've, you know, now I find myself pursuing, a career that I, where I want acknowledgement, I really have to check myself because it's like, it's not good for the soul. This is not good for the soul. I mean, if you make something that is good for, for your soul and reaches other people's souls, like that's incredible, but just the kind of blind pursuit of it is very, very confusing. So I don't know. I, I, and also like, it's really hard and it's, it's, it's toxic. It's just a toxic, I mean, the music and the film industry are toxic. It's wonderful when you find amazing people within it and there totally are, but ultimately it's about making money and, uh, that will, and, and, and you see artists making make less and less money. I mean, I can go on for hours. I don't really have a single, <laughs> a, a single thing to say about it other than, yeah. you know, I think that it, it, it requires a lot of just like connection to self to stay, uh, afloat and what is in reality a really really poisonous uh world <laughs> but like you're saying you know i think it, in, at the end of the day it's important that you're making beautiful art within that within those confines and your music i would say is for sure in that category and even the film projects you've chosen over the years i mean you mentioned the one with your sister was that um untogether that was that, yes that film, yeah together and, and all these different projects i mean i think that's part of third man's mission statement too is to like okay let's take this platform and at least put something beautiful into the world if we're yeah faced with this um so we have a uh, we have a quick lightning round here lola do you have time for a lightning round yes okay. i do let's do it all right let's cue the the workout music we're gonna put that up here okay go ahead great <laughs> yeah. uh, so um as a as a new yorker yourself and me and paul having had connections to Manhattan and Brooklyn, respectively. Uh, what's what's the best slice in New York for you? Oh, the best slice, Joe's. Duh. Yeah. <laughs> okay. All right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good. Um, who would win in a fight, Graham Parsons or Jane Fonda? Jane Fonda. <laughs> Easy. Okay. <laughs> I thought there was. You could knock him over with a feather. That that Graham Parsons. <laughs> She's very scrappy. Um, yes. We, 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 we heard you're not much of a gear person, but uh, what's your favorite guitar? The black one. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Your wildest TM experience. Uh, do you mean my wildest transcendental meditation experience or tour yes. manager experience? No, 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 no. Transcendental, <laughs> transcendental meditation. Oh, my God. Uh, well, I became really good friends with my uh, TM teacher, Janet Mul- uh, Janet. Hoffman, Janet Mulligan is my accountant, sorry. <laughs> and, uh, Janet, I went to visit her in Fairfield, Iowa, which is the, the TM capital of the world. And um, I went to visit her and her father was like 105 and he was doing, they lived together in this beautiful house and they did TM every day and that's how we lived. And three months later, I was on an airplane that connected somewhere near Fairfield and she was on the plane. She's like, oh my God, Lola. 
so nice to see you. Oh my God, Jen, incredible to see you. How's your father? She looks over her backpack. He goes, he's great. He's in here. She was going to New York with his ashes to spread them. <laughs> I thought this moment. That is a wild TM experience. Oh my God. <laughs> okay. Wow. I mean, although your accountant can probably also tell you how to deduct, uh, you know, some other planes of existence, I'm assuming. It's yeah. true. It's yeah. it's true for sure. Write that off. Um, <laughs> favorite, favorite White Stripes song. Who? I mean, the first one I ever heard. I, I you know, dance with the one that brought you. Uh, fell in love with the girl. Yeah. Sure. Awesome. Awesome. Um, what's a song you wrote where, you, when you heard the finished product, you went. Wow, that's damn good. I think Lady for Sale, honestly. All right. Yeah. All right. It's a great yeah. track. It's a great track. Thank you. Thank you. And we got we got your last one here. It's your 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 cliche island question here. You're 13 years old. You're spinning one record nonstop. What is it? Hijira by Joni Mitchell. Okay. There you go. Yeah. All Excellent. Right. Lola, thank you so much. Oh, this thank so you guys. Fun. Thank you for the so music. Much fun. Good luck on Yay. tour. Um, and uh, we, we really love talking with you today. Yeah, I, I, hope, I have I enjoyed hope myself thoroughly. <laughs> I hope your bronchitis gets better. Oh, um, me too. And I'm sorry for all of the non-professionalism uh, me and Paul <laughs> have showed you. It's been a joy. <laughs> Do not worry. <laughs> All right, everybody, that brings us to the end of this season of the Third Men podcast. James is off being a brand new father to his lovely new daughter, baby Chloe, which we're very, very excited about. We'd like to thank everybody for all the wonderful support this season. We'll be back in September uh, with some brand new episodes for everybody to enjoy. But in the meantime, we just wanted to extend this thank you to all of you who have uh, you know, written to us and interacted with us on our social channels and downloaded the episodes. And thank you to all our special guests and all of the uh, folks who contributed ideas for episodes this season. We had such a ball doing that. And we're going to be doing a larger supply chain issues tour kind of roundup later in the year. But for now, we're going to play for you as we outro here some reviews of the Supply Chain Issues Tour that you have sent us so far, and we cannot wait to hear more later in the year. Thanks, everybody. See you in Season 7? Okay. Bye from me. Hey, Paul and James. My name's Kyle. I'm from Cartersville, Georgia, and I had the pleasure of seeing Jack White at the Tabernacle uh, in Atlanta. I saw the first two nights of the, the three-night stand that he was there. Uh, my take on these shows is going to be a little, little bit different probably from some others because these were the first two times that I've ever gotten to see Jack White. So it was a thrill. A uh, little background on getting the tickets. I'd actually been saving a little bit to go to the World Series. The Atlanta Braves were in the World Series back in October. Uh, didn't get to go, and those tickets were way more expensive than even a blue VIP ticket. And I was going by myself, so I splurged on, on one blue VIP and ended up 
front row against the rail at Tabernacle uh, for the first night in Atlanta. And uh, man, I must say, what an experience. Uh, the crowd especially, I thought, was so into it this first night. I think Jack fed off of the crowd especially. Uh, and, and you can hear it on the recordings if you guys are listening to the Nugs recordings as they come out. Uh, he keeps encouraging us, come on Atlanta, come on Atlanta. It wasn't trying to get us pumped up, but almost trying to get us to, to reach an even higher level than we were already at. And it seemed like even all the way to Seven Nation Army, he was excited because we were so excited. Uh, now, a couple things that I noticed of this first show in Atlanta he really seemed to pull all of the new material that he could uh, in this first night. Everything off of the new album, even um, If I Die Tomorrow and Love is Selfish from Entering Heaven Alive, he, he brought those out uh, and even sang the first four songs of Fear of the Dawn in succession before he moved on to something else, which is something we hadn't seen so far. Uh, but I felt almost because he did this, some of the white stripes or, or other material that he pulled out was a little bit deeper uh, in the catalog. The first white stripe song he sang this first night was Apple Blossom. Uh, he played Hello Operator, which he only has a couple times so far, and then pulled out Offend in Every Way, which he hasn't sang at any other point on this tour. Uh, so those were great. Uh, and maybe my favorite part of it, it was a part where he messed up. He didn't even mean to do this, but in Love is Selfish, uh, he started a, another verse, even though he had really finished the song and just, uh, you know, started miming some words, putting some words together about Atlanta, uh, about loving uh, being in this South Georgia town. Uh, mentioned blind Willie McTell that he was from there and being in a place like this, he never feels down. Uh, you know, even in... Even in the mess ups, you could tell that he was he was into it and, and played right along with it. Um, maybe the highlight of this night, personally for me, being on the front row, I got to come home with a, a, a drumstick from Daru Jones. He threw one at me right at the very end of the show, and then uh, Dominic Davis also threw a pick in my direction. Uh, so I got to come home with both of those. It was amazing. It was incredible. Uh, couldn't have asked for a better first night, first Jack White show. Uh, so then I go back the next night, and uh, it's a totally different experience because I bought a, a $33 ticket when they ran the special, and it was the last ticket in the last row, very last seat. Uh, so didn't feel like the crowd was quite as much into it, and really that could have just been me because I was so much further away. Uh, but we, we've talked so much about Jack not using a set list. I've gone back and I've looked. There were 10 different songs the second night than there was the first night. And uh, for me to hear, I guess, more of the quote-unquote Jack White standards, I'd never heard Dead Leaves in the Dirty Ground live before. He brought it out. Same boy you've always known. I loved hearing it. Didn't hear it the first night. And then uh, to, to finish up with Ball and Biscuit, and then start the encore with Icky Thump. Uh, and then to finish the show, not with Seven Nation Army, but with Carolina Drama, uh, that made it that much more special. Even though I was further away, different experience, different, different vibe and energy, uh, to feel like I saw two distinct shows uh, was really special. 
didn't get to go the third night. It, it looks like from a distance that uh, it was an amalgamation of the first two nights. Uh, the ones that I missed, I guess, were Black Math. He played it on the third night. And then even though he played it almost every single show leading up to it, I didn't get to hear Love is Blindness. Didn't get to see him use the ukulele boy, uh, but he pulled those out for the third night. Uh, but all in all, man, I wish I was going back. Uh, it was great. The band was incredible. Uh, I love seeing them have to work the way that Jack, you know, likes to, to make a band work. It's it's not easy. It's not uh, packed in. It's not canned. Uh, every song brings its own different struggle, and it was uh, definitely something to experience. But appreciate you guys. Uh, y'all have a good one, and uh, take care. My name is Tegan. I'm a longtime fan of the show. I've been listening since 2019 or 2020, I think. I was in high school still. But I saw Jack White on the Supply Chain Issues Tour at Agonis Arena in Boston. Hope I'm pronouncing that right because I'm making a fool of myself if I'm not. But yeah, I went with my friend. We had discovered punk rock and like, yo, Nirvana is the big thing. Uh, like that was, that was us in high school. So I went with him and uh, we kind of branched off at a point and I started listening to the White Stripes and he was getting more into like the Modern Lover stuff so we kind of reconnected and I'm like look you're going to the show with me doesn't really matter and he's like okay so I'm super stoked because the whole thing the whole Instagram marketing is like Jack is playing songs from all of his other bands and I'm like all of them like am I gonna hear like itchy or something I don't know and I didn't, but I don't know why I expected him to play that. So, we're in the car there. It's like an hour from where I live. We're in the car going, and I have this big-ass playlist with all, you know, like, basically every song in his discography. And I Fought Piranhas comes on, and we just sit in silence the whole time when we're listening to it. We're like, wow, this song kicks. I don't know why I didn't appreciate it enough. So we get there, uh, Men I Trust open, and they're phenomenal. That was, that was, it's kind of a strange tone switch because they're very soft, sort of like an R&B kind of thing. But, you know, it, it was tight. I really, really enjoyed it. And there were a lot of uh, friends who we had made that night, a lot of older folks who thought it was really funny because we were 19. And they were like, whoa, like, there's such young people like getting into this kind of music. It's crazy. Like, I don't know, dude, we all have Spotify. Like, it's pretty cool. Like, record stores don't ID. Like, I, I've heard about this stuff. So, when I'm sure as as you two have seen this, the, how the show starts, I'm getting very excited talking about this. I'm sorry. The show starts big old blue curtain, and it's silo. It's like strobing, like silhouetting the bands, the the band members, and I'm like nervous. I don't know why. I, I'm like so intimidated watching this. I had like goosebumps, and then they start playing "Taking Me Back," which I made the mistake. I couldn't help myself from checking setlist.fm every single day after every show before the one I saw. So I kind of knew what was going on. Hindsight, wish I didn't do that, but it's, it didn't take away from the experience at all. Because it's, everyone says like, well, it feels like Jack's like playing to you and you don't really get that until you like actually see it. And it's like, wow, he is playing to us because he played canon, right? 
And he started that, and it was, you know, t- it was canon. It was slow, it was brooding, it was terrifying. And then he starts doing the, the, the chug thing where he would sing John the Revelator, and he starts singing Love Buzz, like the shocking blue song, which, you know, of course Nirvana had covered. And me and my buddy, who had, like, kind of discovered Nirvana at the same time, were like, oh my god, there's no way he's actually doing this song right now. And... And he's just like screaming the lyrics to Love Buzz. And it's like, okay, cool. That's awesome. Uh, and then he goes into canon, but at like halftime, which is just like, it's it's terrifying because he's screaming at the top of his lungs. And then it just like slows down. And he starts playing I Fought Piranhas. Like, what the hell? I don't, I, it was like the most transcendent transcendent experience I've like ever had because it's these soft blue lights floating everywhere and it was just this really slow slide guitar thing and of course we saw the show was on Easter so you know the verse it's Easter morning now right so like made sense but still it was like and then right after that he uh, he puts down the slide guitar and starts playing Nervous Breakdown by Black Flag like okay like again, what the hell? It's, it's like he's playing to us, and then he played uh, "Fell in Love with a Girl" and all that. But right after uh, he played "Take Me Back" and "Fear of the Dawn," that's when I'm all over the place right now. This is I'm like stoked. Uh, <laughs> um, uh, after he played "Fear of the Dawn," you see him like sprinting around the stage. You know, he's like telling everybody what's going on. It's like sick, and then. He starts playing Heidi Ho, which we thought was hilarious because I showed him that song, and that's kind of him being my, my friend Dave, who I went with. Uh, I showed him that song, and that's kind of what got him into Jack again because he was more leaning in like a hip hop direction, and I'm like, you know, I stayed in like the bluesy stuff. So I showed him Heidi Ho, and he's like, wow, this guy is hilarious. And so they start playing Heidi Ho with the Q tip backing track. And uh, we were t- joking, like, wow, they got robot Q-tip on here. This shit's insane. Um, so, yeah, I could keep talking about that for hours. There's a lot of songs that I wish I had heard. Like, he didn't play Black Bat Licorice. He didn't play, what was it? Uh, he didn't play Steady As She Goes, which was, like, fine. I was kind of expecting to hear those, but didn't. But then he, he played I Fought Piranhas. So it's like... You know, it's it's okay. He played uh, Dead Leaf on the Dirty Ground for like seven minutes because he couldn't stop soloing. That was cool. But anyways, I will keep talking all day if uh, I don't stop myself right now. So thank you. Uh, I, I love the show. I've been listening for a long time. I will continue to listen. Paul and James, you're some real ones. That's what's up. Okay. Thank you. The Third Man Podcast was created, edited, and produced by Paul and James Kaminsky. Our theme song, We're the Third Men, was recorded by the band Radkey, who can be found at radkey.net. To contact the show, visit thirdmenpodcast.com or email thirdmenpodcast at gmail.com. Also visit at the third men underscore podcast on Instagram, at third men cast on Twitter, and search the third men on Facebook. Thanks to our Patreon patrons. 
to everyone who has rated, reviewed, and subscribed, and see you next time. I am in Portland, Oregon, in a snow gym. Yeah, I. Um, I just. Oh moved. wow, that was a real uh, that was a real <laughs> reference right there. Let's go back to our song. Hey everybody, Paul here with a quick message for you. As James and I mentioned many times on the show, this podcast is 100% not-for-profit and a labor of our love for music. We pride ourselves in bringing you interesting, timely content as we have these past 100-plus episodes. Podcasting is, however, a weirdly expensive process, and we actually lose money on hosting, time, equipment, advertising, and all the other little things that we need to do to make these shows for you. So, to help break even on some expenses like those, James and I have set up a Patreon account where you can, if you like, chip in a few bucks to help keep the lights on. It can be as much or as little as you can swing, and all donations are greatly appreciated. The last thing we want to do is hound anybody for cash, so just know that listening to our show is always payment enough. But if you would like to help us out, that would be amazing. All right, that's all from me. Remember, you can head to patreon.com slash thirdmenpodcast, and a huge thank you to everyone who's donated already. All right, everybody, I'll see you on the show. And I'm Wayne Kaminsky. You are all invited to join us on a magical mystery trip through the lives of the Beatles every week on the Yesterday and Today podcast. This show details the chronological journey of the world's most famous band using music, interviews, and rarities collected since the debut of John, Paul, George, and Ringo onto the world stage. We're a fan-made production and we're available now on iTunes and wherever you find your podcasts. So sit back, relax, and download the stream. We hope you will enjoy the show. All right. We're in the money.